Welcome at four o'clock and we are live. So I'm just laughing from something that our next special guest just said to me. We might mention it later on, we might not do. Anyway, welcome, it's four o'clock to uh, One Chat Live, you're back. Thank you very much for tuning in if you are. Um, and thank you for everyone who listens to this in the future on the podcast. We hit like, if I check now, it's probably a thousand downloads, which if you're a podcaster is like a drop in the ocean. But for humble old me, um and my production team who is me then that's like a magnificent figure that's like kind of running your first marathon so yeah thank you to if you are a podcast listener i mean i'd like you to join us live because then you get to kind of ask our guests questions live and put them on the spot but if you are one of our loyal podcast downloaders and listeners and that's fantastic as well you help us reach a thousand which has made yes which has made me very happy so thank you it probably had a little bit to do with simon bartold last week which was amazing um what a fantastic episode if you haven't heard it yet simon's just been at the uh, biomechanics uh, uh conference in manchester rubbing shoulders with like ben O'Nig and simon spooner and kevin kirby and these names um, from particularly from podiatry but um yeah, if you haven't checked out Simon on last week's episode, then do so. Uh, but today we've got something equally as exciting. Um, Mr. Christopher Johnson, or Chris Johnson, as he's known, depending on which um, social media outlet you look at. I'll check that in a sec. Um, if you have uh, haven't heard of him, then um, I'm very excited. Um, all the way from the USA. Um, he's going to be one of the speakers at the conference in October. Uh, which is amazing. Um, he's well done, been done, got T-shirts for everything. Um, a hugely competitive triathlete himself, multiple qualifier for Kona. He trains athletes all the time for Kona. Um, as well as that, astounding triathlete coach um, and running coach and therapist and father and loving husband, as far as I know. Um, so, yeah, manages to fit it all in. So it makes me very jealous because I definitely, definitely lack in at least five of those areas so um if you do know chris then brilliant hopefully you can tune in or listen and it'll give you a chance to uh listen to the man himself for an hour so without further ado i think that's all said and done i will give chris a little five second countdown hi chris How's it going, Matt? Okay, yeah. So you did make me laugh with that. Should I stay here? Should I appear? Should I entrance stage left, stage right? I'm going to do that in future. I might have a little kind of curtain that appears slowly when you appear. But how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, just you know, low key Saturday morning. Kids are uh, storming around upstairs, and uh, just had our son's one year old birthday party yesterday. He turned one on Thursday. But ah, uh, oh, congratulations. Thank you. So, yeah, busy time in the Johnson household. How very nice. Yeah, I think I saw on your last one of your last video casts in Runner's Zone, there was definitely a small shape in the background behind the glass door, kind of playing with some balancing oh. beam or something. <laughs> yeah, that was my daughter. Yeah, was it? yeah I thought as much. Yeah, yeah very skilled. Yeah, she is. We don't put our kids on social media a lot. You know, I, I don't know. We just we'll let them make that decision uh, as they get older. I have no problem with people who do. It's just. Um, yeah, I don't know, just something my wife and I have never really done. We'll we'll give you like side side profiles. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you'll never see like their their face square. You have to be careful these days. I don't know what it's like in the in the in the USA, but in the in the UK, like for example, you can no longer take photos if you go to schools. Um, you're not even if you're watching your kids doing some performance, you mustn't take photos or videos. It's just not allowed anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's too much or too little. I don't know. But anyway. So great. Thanks so much for coming along. Because it's what time is it where you are? 
uh 8:04 a.m. 8:04 a.m. in Seattle in Seattle correct exactly which yeah. until now most people have kind of probably got links with Kurt Cobain probably yeah and the uh, whole music movement that was Seattle's fame yeah i mean i i think that you know Jimi Hendrix was here oh Kurt yeah Cobain. of course yeah, I mean, yeah. There's a place called EMP, the Electronic Music uh, Project that uh, the late Paul Allen had put together. And uh, it's it's a very cool museum, but you don't realize how deep the roots go, especially with uh, like the whole grunge scene. I mean, it must have been an amazing time to be out here in the 90s. And, and the weather sort of like once you immerse yourself in the culture and just uh, the conditions here, the grunge scene makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can. Yeah. Yeah. The whole bleak kind of. Yeah, I can understand yeah. that. I think I've got a cousin. Actually, I have got not a cousin. I've got a friend out there who works for Microsoft. I think. I think Microsoft's got bigger offices. Yeah, they have a huge presence. Yeah, exactly yeah. as well. Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's a, a few other ones, but great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and so early in the morning as well. It's um, it's it's great. Um, I have um, followed you for a long time. I think I started off, like I said in the advert, I first found you on YouTube with uh, well, you were doing exercises which quite frankly, people found a little bit disturbing, I think, at first, because they were so unique in sense of the tempo, the timing, the concentration, um, the fact that you, there was no machines or anything there. It was you, if anything, inventing exercises with, with anything you could find with these new gadgets and stuff. And did you know at the time it was quite ahead? Were you conscious of that? Uh, I, I didn't know. I, I just started recording things on camera. And a lot of it was a function of trying to be a resource for people who were connecting with me for physical therapy or for coaching in some capacity. And, uh, you know, I couldn't find anything on a lot of these video libraries. I'm like, geez, what am I doing? I just need to shoot these myself. And in that way, I think I stay on the top of their mind and they have a, uh, you know, an instant replay. And I, I'll also say this, I, I leave all those videos up. But there's a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that I've really changed my thoughts and perspectives or approaches on. Um, but I think it's important to make sure people know where you're coming from and realize that, you know, you don't have all the answers. And I'm probably still doing things that I'm going to look back on five to ten years and being like, you knucklehead, what were you thinking? Um, but, yeah, I don't I don't. It's sort of uh, surreal how all this has unfolded. Mm -hmm. I but I'm glad to reach people like you and that you look at those videos and those are the qualities that really shine through. Well, I think now you, you're definitely ahead of your time because now, for example, where tempo is, is I mean, now it's because, I don't think everyone's doing it enough, but the idea of doing exercise to a metronome. So you're actually um, involving the brain that much more by keeping in time with an external variable like that. Um, I think that's coming into more regular practice now, but you were doing it, you know, thinking of your marching drills and changing the tempos way, way earlier than I saw anywhere else before the research was producing anything anyway so hats That's off to you. Tell people i'm way ahead of the research all the time so ahead yeah 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 do you i mean uh, we've got to reach that point now do you speak any spanish no and it's something that um you know <sighs> i want to i want to pick it up as a language i speak uh, i used to speak close to fluent german um yeah but not anymore um, I don't think I, you got my email, but we're going to probably continue a little bit of this uh, interview in Spanish. Because, I, well, uh, I see that uh, someone's trying to oh, Miguel Norabuena. Yeah, yeah, we've got Miguel Norabuena. He's from Lima, and uh, he and David Garcia and I are going to um, do something in mid-August in Lima, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've just had a layover there traveling to Argentina before, so um, it, it's always am amazing to go to South America. 
um, just such a vibrant culture. People are so gracious and just embrace you. Well, they all seem very excited. So you're just going to have to nod for a second as I say hello to Miguel. ¿Qué tal? Hombre, nos vemos. Que... Hombre, a mí me, me encantaría hablar todo en entrevista en español, pero lo que pasa es que el Chris no habla español, así que él se queda en la oscuridad si hablamos así. Pero un abrazo, hombre, y gracias por estar aquí con nosotros hoy. Espero que lo pase muy bien um, con Chris en, en Lima. Y, y nada, que me alegro que estés aquí, ¿vale? There we go. That was me just showing off a little bit of my Spanish. Yeah, Thank impressive. you. You're impressed. Yeah. Yeah, I just said to him that my mother has a pen and my cat is on the chair. I think that was about it. But it's hiding down. Brilliant. That's exciting. So going to Lima, how wonderful. Yeah, it's uh, it's hitting at a great time of the year. So, you know, have just finished Ironman Canada and then um, head to Lima. And then I'll go back to spend some time with my family in Pittsburgh uh, for the, the late part of the summer. Awesome. You're moving around a lot, aren't you? You're doing a lot of courses. Is that taking its toll? Is that hard for you or is it just... Uh, it's a juggling act. Um, you know, as, as I always say, I have a, a messy uh, backstage. Um, everyone thinks they're like, how do you do all this? You're so on top of it. I feel like a scattered mess half the time. Um, but, you know, you can't expect to get every last uh, thing on your punch list done every day. And it, if you are, you're not pushing yourself to your potential. Well, I've got to thank you for coming all the way. We finally did it. You're coming to England. I managed to get you over here than me coming over to New York and that. So... Maybe next time I'll head over to you, but thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Really go, but... Well, it's just an all-star list. I mean, and, and I've never been to uh, to England, and uh, you know, so many of my friends from New York as well as out here, and the people who I seem to get along with online uh, all seem to be from England. So um, maybe I drink too much and have a dry sense of humor, and uh, you know, that's a connection or the common ground. But yeah, I'm thrilled, and to be included on that list, I mean, they're just some really big hitters, and. Uh, and, and I do think that I, I like the theme of the uh, conference of putting evidence back into running. Um, I think that there's so much loose speak around running. And for a sport with such predictable performance demands, um, we should be able to speak in denominators a little bit more consistently. I think I'm glad. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's, I tried to get that kind of catch line of quite a few years ago now, and I was trying to do workshops, but it's almost like for me it's gone over the edge now i think there's a lot of people who are overgoing with the evidence bit that people are talking about evidence which is good mm -hmm. um and there's some great therapists like chris kitson hi chris thanks for joining us chris is a fantastic i think an example of a, a therapist who's just embracing him and mike james and and there's a lot of people out there who are embracing it which is great it's almost as if a lot of therapists now are forgetting about the relevance of what we see in clinic as well and that you can't just go by evidence otherwise you wouldn't be able to do anything you know it's like it's always so polar isn't it and especially in our industry so i'm hoping at the conference that comes out that we as well as saying yeah you got to embrace the evidence we there'll also be that kind of that old analogy of the three kind of the the, the the stool with the three legs and you can't just go by the evidence otherwise you can say goodbye to massage you can say goodbye to even strength training isn't that heavy is it in, in the strength uh, department when it comes to the research um which uh, that's why i like listening to people like 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 yourself like greg layman because you know we're always quick to say yeah we're big on strength but you know what the evidence isn't 100 percent. you know it's probably the best we got but it's not great yet so, yeah, it's going to be a good conference. I can't wait for you to be able to rub shoulders and meet other people who you haven't seen face to face. It's going to be really powerful 
uh, powerful two days, I think. Yeah, looking forward to it. And hey, to dovetail on that point, you know, I'm working with uh, someone right now who's um, dealing with a, a lower limb tendinopathy, and uh, it's funny. And they really have a, a good handle on their strength program. When you look at it, it makes sense. Um, but it's always funny to hear these uh, these anecdotes where uh, this this fellow said, you know, it's when I stopped strength strength training for you know a, a five to seven month period that I was winning all of these races and championships. I'm like, you know, how do you reconcile that? You know, it's uh, I agree with you. There's so much that we don't know when it comes to strength training, especially uh, specific to running. Um, you know, I think there's some people in your neck of the woods that are doing good work. Um, Richard Blogrove, um, for example, but yeah, there's still so much that, uh, that, that we need to learn and we have a ways to go. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, 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 again, it depends on the athlete in front of you. For most runners, I still believe with what I see, most runners are still pretty much obsessed with stretching. I still hold true to if, if runners put as much effort into strength work as they did into stretching, then you know we'd probably bring down that you know incidence of running related injury a lot um but it's just important to remember it's not kind of like the golden egg is it? it's not the answer to everything um, and like you say some athletes may be doing all the strength training in the world but it doesn't seem to be helping the solution so and i think there are certain runners who are just inherently strong and other ones who may not be strong and you know it's how do you how do you customize it specific to uh to the athlete I have a few friends that uh, I grew up and they just had superhuman strength. And, you know, I would think that um, it, it would probably have less relevance in, in their case. Um, but a lot of these, these guys and gals also didn't have great coordination. They had this incredible strength, but they were also oddly clumsy. Um, so, I mean, you could be in a room and there'd be one fragile object, you know, 15 feet away and invariably they would knock it over some way, mm -hmm. somehow. You know, so it's just fine. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to bring us quite nicely into the the what I advertise. I mean, we could talk about anything and everything, but um, for people tuning in, I want them to kind of get an idea about how you assess runners. Let's stick maybe for the moment for injury assessment because it's very different, isn't it? Um, but um, yeah, look, we're talking about strength. So do you do any particular strength tests on a runner? And you can go into as much detail as you want. You can say if it depends on the runner, obviously. But is there some go-to strength tests which you would do when you're assessing a runner? I use a lot of these physical performance tests. So um, let me take a step back. When I was in New York, uh, I spent the first decade of my career at the Nicholas Institute of Sports Medicine and Athletic Trauma, which is this really just unique institute it was housed within Lenox Hill Hospital. Um, this is where the derotational brace was invented by Dr. Nicholas. The handheld dynamometer uh, was invented. The original one used to be called the Nicholas handheld dynamometer. And we also had a, an isokinetic dynamometer. And I, I wish I was in that facility because I would be making use of all this stuff. You know, so if you have a runner come in, you know, you can look at seated hip flexion strength with the handheld dynamometer. You can look at sideline hip abduction. You know, you could look at hip external rotation, um, even prone knee flexion. But if you have an isokinetic dynamometer, it's just, you know, as long as the information that you're gathering is refining your clinical decision making and putting this runner in a better position, either get back to training or if they're healthy, you know, to position them for improved performance, you want to make use of all this stuff. I think it's equally important to also be able to uh, 
apply or take runners through these physical performance tests and really look at them through a refined lens. Um, so I have a, a handheld uh, muscle tester these days, but I don't have an isokinetic dynamometer. But I also don't feel um, I don't feel like that limits me. You know, perhaps if I was working with someone following an ACL injury, yeah, I, I would want a lot of that information just because I saw how the profound levels of weakness that people would come in thinking that they had completely rehabbed. And you're like, wow, you have a 40% quad deficit. That may not have as much uh, of a bearing on someone who's a distance runner, but if they're trying to get back to a level one sport, that's important to me that we, uh, that we try to improve that. So uh, just to just to ask, when you say 40% quad deficit, what are you doing? Are you talking about compared to the other leg or compared to some norm value? Or? Yeah, we would we would typically compare it to the non-involved side. And there's a few different ways to do this. Um, where I did my training at Delaware, because part of it is you want to you want to look at their strength uh, or their force production. Um, but you can also get a lens into the degree of central activation. This is something that Jane Kentbron had uh developed, she called it the central activation ratio. So um, you want to make sure that someone's able to, to get to near full activation. The way that you would do that, for example, when I was at the University of Delaware, is you would have someone kick out and you would see, you know, on the force curve, they would get up to this level and you would superimpose a, a train of electrical pulses. And if that brought their force up and created a spike, that indicated that they were incompletely activated in terms of motor unit recruitment. Um, so now it, when I was in New York, we would look at this more as just a quadriceps index and we would do isometric testing. We would do it at maybe 60 degrees per second, 180 degrees per second and 300 degrees per second. But, you know, from a strength standpoint, you're really, you're more zoomed in on that 60 degree per second or an isometric test. Um, so, but am I doing that with runners? No. <laughs> expand yeah well i mean i think with running if anything uh, you know if you're looking at hamstrings versus quads and all these muscle groups are important it's always funny to read these articles in in the press where it's like it's all about the glutes or it's all about you know the hamstrings it's all about all that all right runners have you know especially the elites tend to have a higher hamstring to quadriceps ratio so now if I'm working with a triathlete, I'm very interested in their quad strength because cycling is all about pushing down. It's not everyone's like, oh, train someone to pull up on the pedal. I'm like, that's such a small contribution. That may smooth out your pedal stroke a little bit. Um, but unless you're a track cyclist, um, I'm more concerned with your ability to, to extend your knee and produce force in that, in that direction. Okay. So let's, um, because there, obviously there's going to be very different demands between uh, triathletes and runners let's stick to runners for now let's imagine that it's not a case of um particular injury you've just got a runner coming to you and you can clarify now what level the runner they are but where in terms of performance are there any particular tests you do which you believe may um play an important part in examining their performance how it could be better let me walk walk through some of the physical performance tests that I would use, you know, if someone came in and I knew nothing about them. Um, and then we can sort of shift the focus to performance. You know, um, obviously, I'd want to see someone run and I would want to get a lot more, uh, a lot more data. But if someone came in to see me and I, I don't know if they're well, let's let's take a, a specific example. Um, I had a woman come in to see me the other day and uh, she 
has been sidelined from training. She's dealing with proximal thigh pain that she describes in a circumferential manner. And I'm like, oh, that's not great. You know, um, you know, high body mass index, um, but no history of stress fractures, you know, played axial sports growing up, yada, yada. And she's able, she's able to walk right now. Um, but she said running's out of the, the question. She just starts to adopt altered mechanics. So in this sense, I always want to take someone from the most conservative to the least conservative physical performance tests. And, uh, and I'm not saying necessarily that you have to do all of these, but I want to get a lens into, hey, how do we push the needle with this, with this woman? Um, you know, or as Greg Lehman likes to say, you know, um, load or unload, expose or protect. So um, in a lot of these physical performance tests are really easy. You, you need minimal equipment. So I just start off and I say, hey, let me, how's your toe dexterity? Lift up the great toe while keeping the lesser toes pinned to the ground, vice versa, and splay. If you can't do that, that doesn't mean the end of the world's coming, nor does it mean that you're going to have pain or go on to develop issues. I'm just seeing how coordinated people are. And you're also doing a lower quarter screen to a degree. So you're getting a ton of information. Um, but I would say that the set group is I would look at single leg balance. All right. And I'm not getting too hung up if they have a little bit of a bobble here and there, you know, or a little bit of uh, extra wobble in their ankle. I'm not too hung up on that. I've just seen too many high level and world class runners that can't balance to save their life in terms of like sticking the position. And then you put them in motion. And they're gazelles. So I'm really looking at single leg balance to see which side they initiate on, you know, and are they able to, are they willing to load that side or are they holding their breath? Are they like flailing their arms? You know, if there's a profound wobble, yeah, that's something I'm a little bit more interested in. So I'll look at that on each side and, uh, and I tend to just do it with the knee straight, not locked or in the closed pack position. And uh, I'm gonna see if they can hold it for 20 seconds. I don't have them close their eyes. I, I just keep it simple, all right? Um, and I'm also doing this barefoot. I think it's important to, to just standardize these, uh, these physical performance tests. Um, from there, I would look at a lateral step down. I think that this has a ton of relevance or salience to runners. Um, some people look at a single leg squat, which is fine, but I like the lateral step down because it forces runners to directly load through the knee and ankle while also having uh, good control throughout the lower extremity. If someone's really wobbly with single leg balance where they're like flailing their arms or, you know, it looks like they're drunk, I'm not even going to look at a lateral step down because what are you really getting a window into? You're giving them a more demanding task. It's premised on single leg stance or balance. You know, you're just going to basically make them feel bad and then you're going to have them walk out. Um, but if, if they are tolerant of lateral step down, um, I want to I want to look at their strategy. Are they going into a hip flexion strategy, which may indicate perhaps there's some stiffness in dorsiflexion where they can't advance the leg over the foot? But I'll look at um, a lateral step down, and I'll have people do um, reps at 30 beats per minute over the course of a minute. So essentially, 30 lateral step downs, um, and I'll again do this on both sides. Um, I'll look at calf raises. Uh, there's some interesting research from Herbert Lozer. Uh, I may be bastardizing the pronunciation of the name, but um, I'm always amazed how weak people are uh, in fatigue, fatigable they are in their, in their calves, especially as they get older. Um, so I'll look at that. And again, 30 beats per minute. And I want to take them so long as they don't have like an insertional Achilles tendinopathy. 
which you can start them on level ground, but I'll put them on a little bit of a slant. Corinne Silbernagel talks about 10 degrees. I think you're splitting hairs. Have them work through their available range. Uh, but I want to see someone have at least 25 reps on each side. Can you, uh, sorry to interrupt, but every time yeah. you say something, I think it's going to be, do you mention the beats per minute? What's the significance of having them work to, to like a, a sound kind of metronome, however you do it? What's the significance of that? Well, I think it forces them to just maintain the rhythmicity of the assessment. Um, and you all, because people, they shouldn't go up and then they sort of lose rhythm. They should, it should be a very fluid test. All right. And it's interesting. I have a couple runners who, uh, for example, one fellow who just clocked a 109 half marathon and he has such a tough time staying in sync with the beat. Um, but that's also sort of the blame game, you know, of research where, you know, she's documented or published on this using that protocol. So that's where I want to apply the evidence. Um, I'll look at pogo jumps. I think pogo jumps uh, yield a wealth of information. But before we get into energy storage and release, and, and back to your point, 30 beats per minute, you know, that's just basically slow rhythmic movement. You could easily take that up to 60, 90, 120 um, if you want, you know, and that's just looking at rate of force development. So yeah. um, I'll also look at just a standard bridge and straight leg raise. Um, I want someone to hold roughly 30 seconds on each side uh, without sinking into hip flexion or letting their bottom come to the ground. Um, and I also want to make sure that they maintain some degree of um, a level pelvis. All right. So I always say, you know, if you have a carpenter's grade level, that the bubble should basically stay in the center um, of the markers. Um, I'll look at a side plank really to load the lateral hip. Um, and there's a bunch of different ways that people perform side planks. Um, the way that Evans and Stu McGill originally uh, published on was basically having like a scissored position with the feet. So if you're on your right side, the top leg slightly forward, let's say, you know, 10 to 15 degrees, and the bottom leg is slightly back, you'd be surprised. People should be able to hold that when you look at um, some of the data that's been published at least a minute, all right, uh, irrespective of, uh, you know, if you're a man or a woman. Um, so I'll look at that side plank. I'll also look at a side plank with hip abduction to really load the lateral hip. And that would be an advanced assessment for someone who's rebounding from a gluteal tendinopathy or a glute medius strain. Um, and then I would get into pogo jumps. Um, mm. Blaze Williams, who's uh, at Nike right now, he was previously at East Carolina University. And before that, um, I want to say University of Delaware. He was there when I was there in the biomes program. But he's come up with this readiness to run scale. And he talks about pogo jumps where you're basically reaching up to a, a marker on the wall and they're doing it to 160 beats per minute. Um, and they want you to be able to do that over the course of a minute. I, I think 160 is it's it's not a bad value. I want to take someone lower just to have absolute confidence that they can load through that calf muscle complex and Achilles and the plantar aspect of their foot, for example, if they're rebounding from uh, a metatarsal stress fracture. Um, but I'll take that down to hundred beats per minute. Like if I were, if I were working on myself and I wanted to clear, clear me for running, I would want to see that I could do that to hundred beats per minute, just because I would have that much more confidence that I could load through these regions and tissues. Mm -hmm. So, and then the last thing would be, you could do pogo jumps, um, 
in place, sometimes do them anterior, posterior, medial, lateral, and go two to one. So um, single leg pogo jumps, just given the performance demands of running, um, you want to make sure that someone has single leg tolerance to them. And then the last thing would be running in place. And I would do that to 170 steps per minute. That's based off of Lace Ludke's work, um, where I'd say I want them at least at 170. Um, and that's going to throw you on your forefoot a little bit more if you just try running in place. Um, so again, you're loading the calf muscle complex, you're loading the Achilles, the plantar aspect of the foot. Um, and obviously, what's the most important functional assessment for a runner? Running. You know, if someone's running, you have to get them on the treadmill. And that was one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on in my career. And I'd be curious if you did as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, to tell you the truth, in the early days, we used to like, um, and I remember, and I laugh about it now, but our business model was like, oh, well, if you want to get analysis as well, then you've got to pay extra. But it got to the stage where how can you really help someone who comes to the door by just feeling them and moving them and doing all these kind of like assessment tests, but you're not having a look at them running. I mean, there's no point and you can't really conclude anything unless you're seeing this person run. So it got to the stage where it was like, obviously you can't give everybody a three hour gate analysis for the same price as a normal just consultation or something because of the price of the equipment. But if a runner comes in and they've got a problem or they want to be a better runner, you're going to have to look at them running, you know, how long for it depends. But so, yeah, we had to knock that idea on the head and just give access to as many people as well. Um, the, I mean, one of the things which I think thera any therapist listening to this might be interested in, because from my own experience, I've played around with definitely a lot of therapists work with runners, I think are obviously used to metronomes um, and beats per minute for running. But the whole concept of having people, assessing people in time to a metronome is a fantastic idea. So what do you use? Do you use, uh, is it an electronic beat or something on the computer or is it an old fashioned metronome? Or what do you use? You could do anything. Um, I just use, uh, this is going to sound like I'm marketing the run cadence app, which I'm still having to explain <laughs> to my wife, um, why, why it's not paid off. But, um, I just use a run cadence app and I set it to whatever beat frequency that I want. Right, right. Uh, easily use when you look at the research on this stuff i would say that the most practical thing would be to um to do it to a metronome if you can't do that feel free to just set music up um there's an app called weave run w-e-a-v um, and you can control the tempo of the music so um I, I think that's an option but yeah i mean just download a free app and uh and, and put it to use it looks like it looks like we've set this all up now. Isn't what do you use, Chris? I use my app called Run Cadence, but honestly, for those people, <laughs> funnily enough, here's a picture I've got loaded. I was going to yeah. ask about this later on, but I didn't naturally see the parallel. So yeah, of course, uh, I mean you could use the same apps you use for to establish your running beat, and you have got Run Cadence. So let's just mm -hmm. um, take a sidestep onto that. No pun intended. Um, this came out at a time where cadence suddenly became everything didn't it yeah and and again it's one of those things i did a podcast with runners connect the other day which was lovely because it was um it was all about gait analysis but it was kind of a follow-up to one that i did with them four or five years ago and it was gave me a chance to say what had changed and it was funny how much had changed one of the things was cadence where when cadence first came out it all seemed like we were trying to speed up everyone's cadence it was the fix for everything Oh, you've got shin spins. Oh, you're suffering from this. Oh, you got oh, speed up your cadence. Listen to this app. 
But then suddenly being the natural rebel, I realized, hold on, there's probably just as many runners out there who need to slow down their cadence, you know, because they're just shuffling along. They've got no, they've got no, um, um, they haven't got the strength to actually make those many, many steps, actually give them any lift at all. So I was slowing runners down. But um, yeah, how's the, how's it going? How are you using cadence these days? Yeah, I mean, I I use it, to me, I think that this is a, just a, a great tool for clinicians um, and there's a lot of way. I mean, I think the more you understand cadence, there's a lot of workarounds to it as well. Um, and I just I want to have full transparency, you know, because I want people to just understand the science of step rate and apply it where where they think it's relevant. Um, but to your point, you know, I think sometimes it, if someone comes in, they're dealing with a lower extremity complaint or running related injury. Um, that's a great opportunity to prove to them that their pain is perhaps malleable or that we can desensitize things without having to stop them running through uh, step rate manipulation. But as I always say, look both ways before crossing. You know, my instinct is initially, if my clinical reasoning lands me in the right place, that I'm going to probably increase someone's step rate, again, with the caveat that you have to keep running velocity constant. And that's something I feel like a lot of clinicians still don't fully appreciate because if you start running faster, you naturally want to turn your feet over faster. So initially, I'll I'll use step rate to desensitize things. But once I feel like people are going in the right direction, I actually want to slow their step rate down to make sure that they can fully load through these regions. Um, so I want runners to just have this gnarly bandwidth. If you spend a lot of time with cyclists, it's amazing. I mean, they, they can adopt these pedaling frequencies or cadences in a really broad range. And I think runners should be able to do that as well. So if I'm running at conversation pace, I could go up to 250 beats per minute. And I I can also go down to 135 beats per minute. That's just a more robust system at that point. Let me just interrupt. did Did you just say you can run at 250 beats per minute and still maintain the conversation? Yeah, I'm almost tempted to go out and do it right now. My, tre- my treadmill <laughs> is uh, next door. It looks like you're shuffling. It looks like you're, you're type, a, a typewriter. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But if you want to understand step rate and how it impacts kinematics, um, take it to extremes, and it's so abundantly clear because you essentially go from basically quick feet to being like a triple jumper. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so you do, you do the 250 beats per minute and still have a conversation to show – that although you're managing to reach such a high cadence, you're not actually reaching any desirable running economy or producing any output or anything. Yeah, I use it more for demonstration to yeah, show you. how can how we can reduce the magnitude of loading. And obviously, at that point, you're probably your heart rate is probably going through the roof. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I use uh, I use cadence quite a bit um, with runners, but there's also a lot of other factors, and this all needs to, I think. Um, be consistent, you know, based on someone's complaints, the regions that are involved, um, you know, you have to sort of synthesize all of this information and say, where do we intervene? Yeah, definitely. It's still a very useful tool um, for offloading and changing things. But yeah, I still see, even this morning I went for a run and I, I saw, actually, I don't know what was going on. I nearly filmed it and I thought, no, you're just being a grumpy old cynical man. Who, who knows what's going on? But there was this guy who I, looked like the trainer and then this girl who i noticed because she's wearing like a red one-piece bathing suit it's not that hot outside today in the uk i then i'm not quite sure what was going on there but she was doing these kind of she did this length running up and down this kind of seafront outside then he stopped her 
and he made her he showed her something and he made her do another length and he must have said speed up your cadence but basically she looked like what you just said mm-hmm. i'm not quite sure what the goal was so if you well, the chances of them watching this, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it just looked like suddenly she was just shuffling along with a ridiculously high cadence. Um, and he kind of looked like he was commending her. And I was like, oh, do I film it just from back here? Or no, because like I'm perving on some Baywatch wannabe. But yeah, it's there's still a lot of learning, I think, that needs to go on with regards to cadence. There's definitely, do you use, do you use it a lot in your workshops and presentations? And no, not a little bit. I mean, if I'm doing the treadmill analysis section, you know, I, I've talked about the S's of treadmill analysis. So strike, sound, step rate, speed, surface, shoes, slope, shank, swing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you could keep going all day. But yeah, I use that as one of the factors that um, that um, I'm putting some weight in. Mm-hmm. So again, and I'm not if someone's running consistent, our bodies are not dumb. All right. They strive for metabolic efficiency. Um, so when you get a window into someone's running, you just have to take a step back and saying, why are we seeing what we're seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm more concerned if someone has knee pain and they're running with a step rate of say 150 to 165 uh, steps per minute. Cause I think that that's low hanging fruit and you'll get buy-in um, if you can get them to adopt it and, the the severity of their symptoms abate so yeah but i I also think challenge people especially if you have healthy runners um in their and you have confidence and they have confidence in loading their body have people tinker with all these different step rates and just give them uh you know the freedom to do so because i think that you'll figure out what's most economical for you Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I think um, I think you can see the comment on the screen. I think Gary was referring back to when you were talking about the metronomes. I think mm-hmm. he was talking about the different beats per minute. Um, you kind of explained, didn't you, that you start on conservative and then work your way. So you'd wonder. It depends. You said you go up and down the, the the range of beats per minute depending on the athlete, wouldn't you? It's not a case of slower for um, more recreational runner and faster for kind of more elite, is it? You'd work up and down depending on what they need. Yeah, I, I want to just first say if someone's running, I want to get them on the treadmill and get a window into their step rate. Uh, and from there, you know, if, again, if a runner comes in and they're like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm running, I get pushed back around four to five miles and I get them and say, let's just say they're having a knee complaint because that's where step rate uh, has its greatest effect. Um, so if someone is saying, hey, I get four to five miles in uh, and I start getting some pushback with my knee, that's a case where I'm, inclined to probably if i'm going to tinker with step rate take it up anywhere from five to ten percent so long as they can adopt that new uh that new beat frequency um but you know at the same time i also want them to have confidence lowering it once we get them back to consistent running just so we know that they can load through these regions if that makes sense yeah uh, oh so he was talking about the strength ready to run tests yeah I would just say 30 beats per minute. I think why a lot of researchers have landed on that um, is it's just slow, rhythmic, focal loading where you're going to be able to assess the quality of someone's movement and you're going to slow them down. So they have to load through these regions. Um, It's amazing. You know, there's a saying, uh, I'm not sure who came up with this, but speed hides need. Um, So if you have someone do a certain activity or movement fast, you know, they, they may be able to, to cheat it or trick it out. 
So, and this gets back to a lot of these exercises that I demonstrate. Everyone's like, why are you doing all this slow motion stuff? I'm like, well, I'm a physical therapist, you know, first and foremost. So I need to have confidence that people can directly load through these regions. And what better way to challenge them than slow rhythmic focal loading? And what will also happen is, is a clinician, you can just shut up because I think we cue people too much. And I say, hey, do this exercise. This is what it looks like if I demonstrate it. Understand, I don't expect it to look identical, but when you slow things down, you give people model performance, you invariably start self-auditing. And people mm -hmm. say, why is it so tough on this side? You know, and the other side it seems very fluid. Um, that's the beauty of a lot of the, and it, it's, it's funny cause it dovetails so nicely with a lot of the tendon related research talking about heavy, slow resistance. It's forcing people to load through these regions that a lot of times they may subtly avoid or compensate around. Yeah, definitely. I think when I, I mean, I can't remember what year it was, but you've probably read, have you read the better movement book by Todd Hargreaves? Have you yeah, read that? in Seattle here. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Of course, you know, probably know Todd very well, because um, I remember reading that and it had a big impact on me at the time. I mean, he took it a lot of it from Feldenkrais and the whole kind of just being mindful, mindful movement kind of thing. But I think the research there, yeah, especially in rehab days, of just involving the mind, like he would say, when you can breathe through a movement, then you control that movement. It's just all of that. So I think it tied really nicely when that book came out, what I was seeing you doing on YouTube with the with the rhythmic kind of exercise and taking control. And because anyone can march along as fast as you can, you could do it for probably two minutes with the knees up in the air, but you slow it down and control and get hit a rhythm. It takes a lot more systemic kind of coordination control, doesn't it? Which is what something we forget, don't we? Running's a skill. And a lot of the time when the coordination's lost, then the brain starts getting worried, and that's when you fatigue and your form goes out the window. So it makes a lot of sense, I believe. So yeah, I hope that helps, Gary, anyway. Um, so let's move on to assessment and injury in the sense that, I mean, you're very much on top of the evidence, which is why I'm such a fan of yours as well. Um, anything which you have read lately or you still adhere to a lot in terms of assessment to explain injury? I mean, there's a lot of contradiction in studies, but to throw something out there like step width and ITB strain or something like that with, a, I think it was the Mearden papers. Is there anything concrete which you kind of test, which you will do, which you think help explain why a runner is suffering from a particular injury or? Uh, I feel like it's such a broad question. I almost uh, want to make sure I'm, I understand the question again. Well, like, for example, if someone comes to me and they've got ITB strain, I'm still quite a fan of, even if it's just a case of offloading it, I'll check whether they have got a crossover or something. Mm -hmm. So the evidence is there, not all for all runners, but it's worth probably as part of a, as part of a big plan to get them to, to practice and running with a, an inch wide um, uh, width to their step or something to try and offload the ITB as part of other kind of steps as well. So that'd be one example. Um, so I'm thinking of anything else which you might do, like uh, glute med strength or, or hip drop, or anything you still adhere to in terms of when you see them running, which might explain why they're why they're in why they're in pain. Well, I would say that you know the example that you gave, uh, that's something that I would definitely look at, and uh, you know certain instrumented treadmills will have a line down the center of the treadmill, and just to sort of pick it up. So if you capture video in slow motion or you have any uh, video footage. Um, I think it's helpful, especially if you're showing the person to say, hey, look, you're complaining of, 
you know, issues on the lateral aspect of your knee consistent with ITB syndrome. And, you know, isn't it interesting how on the right side, you're crossing over midline, which is a symptomatic side, and you're not doing that on the left. Um, I think there's, you know, some good information on contralateral pelvic drop. Um, you know, the tricky thing is I have a great example. I have a friend who, uh, who's from the UK and um, went top 10 in Kona. Like this guy's a really, he's a hell of an athlete. Um, and he has a most gnarly contralateral pelvic drop in the world. And he's running a three hour marathon off the bike and he's in the 45 to 49 age group. So again, you have to see these things and, and just plug them into the context and saying, what's this person coming to see me for? Um, so I'll look at all that stuff, but I also, I don't want to get people too fixated on it where it creates a complex. So if we have someone who's dealing with uh, ITB syndrome and you think it's because they're increasing strain and strain rate um, from having uh, a tendency to cross midline, that's a case based on Boyer, uh, uh, Elizabeth Boyer and Derek's work um, where you can increase step rate and that'll start to widen their step width. So again, it, I think it's like if your clinical reasoning takes you uh, down this path or you start barking up this tree, well, if you introduce an intervention that's going to reduce the magnitude of that, you would expect them to start going in the right direction. And if they don't, you better come down from that tree and start rethinking why is it that we're seeing what we're seeing or why aren't they improving? Um, and I, I always say with runners, I mean, unless they come in with a traumatic uh, situation, you have to, you, you should be able to get them going in the right direction in a relatively timely manner. And if you're not, you better pivot and start going back to the drawing board with your clinical reasoning. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now that makes sense. How about, I mean, on the conference, you're going to be talking about, I think, um, dorsiflexion, which is something mm -hmm. which again, fits into the knee to wall test is something I think most therapists will do. But again, when you mentioned the, the, the contralateral pelvic drop and that I've got very fast runners who have got definitely no, not 10 centimeters of dorsiflexion or, or 35 degrees rather. I mean, they have to be practically touching toes, touching the wall to be able to get their knee onto the wall. They're not in pain. They're great performances. So it's all very tricky, but do you still look for a particular norm with regards to the amount of dorsiflexion in the ankle? Not really. No. But what is, what is it about those runners when you put them on a treadmill or you capture footage of them running? What do you tend to see? uh now you tell okay. me well i would just say i i see a lot of runners the one week i had i think five marathoners who are all sub 230 runners and a lot of them had minimal to no ankle dorsiflexion mm -hmm. the ones who presented as such do you think that they were heel striking no i see what you mean okay yeah this is a great example yeah, i, I think that sense. you need a certain level of dorsiflexion maybe to do to get through life to go downstairs and do stuff like that but i also think that you know folks who have been running for a while are going to realize that hey a rear foot strike is not going to do them any favors and is probably going to prevent them from running these are folks who naturally will have more of a mid to four foot strike um and and they are fine so mm -hmm. i think that you I, I watched i feel like literally three or four videos last night talking about improving dorsiflexion i'm like uh, you're just going to start sensitizing because you're stretching the snot out of that Achilles tendon. Yeah. The people who I, in the lateral step down, if we take a step back and look at that uh, physical performance test or functional assessment, 
that's a great example where you'll get a window into their dorsiflexion. So, you know, you could do the needle wall test, great, but I want to look at how they control that in a dynamic situation when they're in a, you know, when they're on one leg. And, you know, if they go down, they go into a hip flexion strategy and they do this symmetrically on both sides, you know, you're probably saying this is their architecture. You know, this is a thing thing. Don't start calling attention to it. The folks who I get concerned about are runners who present with asymmetrical dorsiflexion. And uh, especially to say, if we take a trail runner, for example, where they say, hey, I, you know, I've sprained this ankle a couple times. They may adopt a slight toe out when they go to set up for um, the lateral step down. And it's this asymmetrical presentation because I think that's a situation where, yeah, maybe there's a case where if they haven't adapted and they're getting some pushback uh, with running in that lower leg um, or foot and ankle region, that's something where I do think we want to take a closer look and say, hey, is this something that may respond to treatment? Um, but if someone doesn't have any past medical history, you know, and again, dorsiflexion limitations are common after a lateral ankle sprain. People adopt a slight toe out because they can no longer advance the leg over the foot uh, because of this, this stiffness pattern. But if someone comes in and they have symmetrical uh, dorsiflexion and they're not having any issues, I'm not getting too hung up on it. So again, it's just really making sure that you collect a, you know, a comprehensive past medical history, that you're really in tune um, to, to what the patient's verbalizing um, and, and what their functional assessments are revealing. A great example of this, I was teaching in Bellingham, which is uh, just south of the, the border going into Canada. And uh, in this uh, early 30s woman, I, if I had to guess, she was like, yeah, I'm having some inner like thigh discomfort. You know, she was saying like, I have some, you know, hamstring um, pain or discomfort on the, the medial aspect of the posterior thigh. And she was telling me that she had a, a couple ankle sprains within the past, um, past few months. And when you put her on a treadmill, she would run with a slight toe out. And she said, I've never done this before. And like when I'm running on trails, I always notice this right foot towing out a little bit. And she had this marked limitation in ankle dorsiflexion. She did no rehab following the ankle sprain and she was getting back and she was probably adapting pretty well. But at the same time, when you hear all of this stuff jive, that's saying, hey, this is probably a case where we want to go in and see if we can buy her some motion. But the problem is, is that if you just address a dorsiflexion limitation and you don't start directly loading through that, and really reestablishing motor control, which is one of the other impairments based off of Freeman's work, it, he was discussing back in the early 60s, you know, that's a problem. And that's what I see a lot of the times. People go in and address these dorsiflexion limitations and they never start loading the person in this new range and not just loading them, like really being consistent with it. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating subject because it's, I mean, again, it's, it's changed so much, I'm sure for you, but definitely for me over like eight, nine years of what I expect to see. And also the other side as well of, I think you mentioned like restrictions, but obviously there's the other side where somebody may not have enough stiffness in that particular ankle. Mm -hmm. Someone might be really proud that they can put their foot 20 centimeters away from a wall and still touch it. And they're smiling and you see it amongst runners like, hey, look, check me out. And you then say, you know what, this is the symptomatic side. And I think maybe you need to get some stiffness in that ankle. And there's that shock horror moment of what you want me to reduce my range. And it's like, well, kind of, that's going to be the 
the the the the, yeah, the outcome of it if we actually get some reactivity in that Achilles tendon and stuff. So, so it can work both ways, can't it? If you're looking Absolutely. at dorsal flexion, yeah. It's an interesting one. Well, we're looking forward to hearing that definitely um, as part of the conference. Chris brought up, um, and I listened to you as well. And I've got a, my, I've got a brain like a sieve, um, especially since the kids. But you definitely um, joined Layman with regards to just remembering the names of these researchers and just trotting them out. Like Chris has said, how on earth do you remember all the names of these researchers? What well, seems like hundreds of thousands of papers? Chris, I don't know. I don't know whether it's they're just total geeks and they just stay up at night. I don't know. Maybe they play that pickup game where it's like link the paper with the researcher. They must do something. How do you remember it? What is it? I'll tell you what. I uh, came from the school of hard knocks when I was at the <laughs> Institute. Uh, we would have these core curriculums on Tuesdays and you would have a very uh, mixed group of practitioners in there. So you would have it, it was literally like you were going on the stand. So you would have a nutritionist who is very well published. You know, she did a lot of work on central fatigue and cyclists, but you would have a biomechanist, you would have an electrical engineer, you would have a statistician, you would have, you know, five orthopedic surgeons, you would have physical therapists. And because it was such a research-based group, if you went to present and you didn't know not only the studies, but the methodology, you know, talking about sampling frequencies, the stats that they were running, people would just call you out. And, and it wasn't like, hey, Chris, you know, um, can you take a look at this study and, you know, make sure that we really have the details right? They would basically say like, look, if you're going to waste my time on Tuesday, uh, let me know because I'm not going to show up next time. And it's obvious that you just read this abstract. So they, it was a really tough group. So when you, when you went to present, you would just know this information cold. Um, and I think that it was, it was just, such an invaluable experience being brought up in that kind of environment because it just forced you to speak uh, in denominators. And uh, I always hate, like, I, I would I would take on a lot more presentations that I needed to because I knew that if I signed up for it, it would just force me to get organized. And then you, when you start reading this stuff, a lot of these names keep appearing, all right? So, and again, I... I I know certain domains of the, the literature pretty well, but I also, I'm just thirsty to try and get at truths. And, and that's why I'm coming over to your conference, Matt, is because I think all of the folks who are presenters there, they're in the seeking truths. And they also realize that there's still a lot of work that we need to do. Um, so, but again, I, I don't think you necessarily need to know the researchers, but if you understand, you know, what the study showed or didn't show, that's really what's important. And you start you know, synthesizing all this information and you start seeing the common denominators. I mean, that's what makes someone like you, a, a Tom Goom and Izzy Moore. Uh, I mean, Greg is just marvelous at this because you have to say, it's like if we go back to the, the strength training uh, literature, we can say it seems like strength training is important and using heavy loads is important. And we should probably be doing this two, two times a week. I, I think that's where you, you want to look at what are the common denominators. And uh, and that's probably what's important. Yeah, definitely. Well, there you go, Chris. It's just, uh, I think it's a combination of time and pressure and being forced. Yeah. People expecting you to produce that helps it stick around. But yeah, but you have see, you do seem to have a knack for it. I must admit, Chris, I've got to check which Chris I'm talking to. Kitson, there you go. But yeah, Christopher Johnson. Yeah, definitely has a knack for it. You make it look very easy. Just, 
sprouting out these names from nowhere it's uh, very convincing chris kitson just do what i do and just let these guys remind us of the names now and again and let them be the geeks we're kind of half geeks they're true geeks but anyway um right well look i can't believe it's 456 i feel like we've dropped half an hour somewhere but we've already been talking for 50 over 50 minutes which is pretty crazy um and i'm not under a time crunch so Oh, I can see my two toddlers outside now, nearly banging the door down. <laughs> I wish I wasn't, but I am. Listen, so um, so summing things up, I mean, there's an awful lot of, I mean, you've given us an awful lot of examples of, of how you assess runners um, in terms of injury and performance. I think the metronome idea um, to show control, have an external kind of um, variable they've got to concentrate on um is is a fascinating one which i think therapists will hopefully play around with um we've kind of suggested repeatedly that if we stay away from norms it's all part of the jigsaw um, we look for things but we don't necessarily you know draw conclusions straight away which is all very important um is there anything else you kind of want to add in terms of assessment or anything which you're working on at the moment you, you what was it you were looking you're looking at what was the table testing mention that which you were interested in Oh yeah, I mean, this is something that we'll, we'll get into it when I uh, when I present. This is something that I'm very uh, I don't talk about online because, uh, as Christopher Hitchens says, uh, that can be which assert that can be uh, asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Um, but the table test is just something that I accidentally developed. Um, working on my wife on a snowy evening in Brooklyn on a Friday night, 10 years ago. No, I think, you better, I think you better rephrase that. We've have to change that in the edit. What was it? What yeah. were you doing? Working on your wife on a snowy evening. <laughs> Cut. By candlelight. <laughs> okay. Um, no, but the table test is this uh, weird assessment that I accidentally stumbled on and, and it, it just pulls together so many different um, factors and it, I have my biases about it just because I've been working with it for 10 years and it just gives you such a lens into so many different moving parts, but it's really looking at, um, it's a midfoot. If I have to sum it up, it's a, it's an assessment of midfoot ability or the ability of the forefoot and the rear foot to torsion and how that can impact things upstream. Um, but if someone has a limitation, this table test, it, it, it's a very predictable set of findings that you're going to, that you're going to pick up on orthopedic clinical examination. So, uh, and again, there's some videos that, uh, that are online discussing the table test, but, um, if someone has a limitation, um, I almost feel like we need to pull the video up, but we, we can put it in show notes or something like that. But yeah, 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 sure. if someone has a limitation in the table test, they are going to typically have a loss of ankle dorsiflexion. They're going to have a loss of terminal knee extension. They'll have greater hip external rotation on that side as assessed in 90 degrees of hip flexion. They'll have a relative loss of internal rotation. And it's just amazing. Now you have to be careful if someone has um, any sort of sports specific adaptation. Like if you're looking at someone like a Rafael Nadal who hits an open stance forehand in tennis, he's going to be an outlier and you have to understand the performance demands of a sport where someone does have a, an adaptation because, um, that just requires a really refined thought process into, into where you intervene. But I'll show you this, Matt. And, uh, yeah, no, this is like, something you're going to touch into the conference, is it? 
Yeah, I, like I said, I, I'm not going to spend too much time. I'll show a few examples. And, uh, you know, when you become proficient with this assessment, uh, I just think it has such relevance, whether we're talking about someone with FAI, whether someone is cleared to go back to uh, level one sport after an ACL injury, if someone's dealing with posterior tibialis tendon, uh, posterior tib tendinopathy, um, it, it's just, if I get it at some point, I have a responsibility to go back to get a PhD to understand the moving parts of what we're seeing with this assessment and why we're seeing it. You know, and that that literally is going to require my kids to be out of the nest because I'll just have to get so fully immersed in uh, in that in that body of work. Well, hopefully in Brighton, you'll have a chance to sit down in the evening. Maybe we'll give you a little quiet table with a candle with um, Simon Bartold and um, yeah. And, yeah. uh, and Ian and that, and you can sit down and talk it over with a napkin. I remember Chris, no, I remember Greg Lehman trying to explain to me why, how, why stretching is important for runners and he had a napkin and a Guinness and a pen. It just wasn't going in. And he, threw, and he probably threw a Kubo's article in and you're like, oh. he was trying to show me these graphs and it was just in this pub with noise. It was on, it was on like a, what was it on? It was on a St. Patrick's day. Yeah. So there's him trying to explain the fundamentals of the stretch reflex or something with these guys around wearing green hats and stuff. It, just, <laughs> it was hilarious. It was unbelievable. You, anyway, but may, hopefully going on stretching and the Stefanishan studies. And, yeah. yeah, he was yeah. dragging up this and going, you see, this is why actually. And I'm like, oh, mate, just let's get another drink. It's just not going in. But anyway, look, um, oh, it's 5.02. Chris, um, we could have talked for another hour quite easily. Um, thank you so much for your time um i'm hoping well i know there's a there's an awful lot there which uh hopefully clinicians and runners will be able to look over and listen and pause and digest um but um between now and october what are your plans like where are you you're staying in settle for a while now have you got oh no you've got a big show coming up haven't you i yeah it's trial by fire these days we literally yeah. have every weekend so i'll race quarter lane 70.3 next weekend um I have my birthday the following weekend. Then I have Ironman Canada at the end of July and then Lima and then visiting my parents and then Portland and then Los Angeles, then New Hampshire and then your conference. I don't, and the funny thing is it's like, I, I feel so fortunate. I don't do any marketing. I, I have a lot of folks who um, I guess really value when I run my mouth, but I don't care to listen to, I don't care to hear myself talk, you know? So when people, you know, engage me or invite me to do this stuff, I I'm terrible at saying no um, because I want to go and just share my perspective. And I, I've come from such a crazy background in terms of being able to, from being told that I wasn't going to run past the age of uh, my early twenties to being told I need knee replacements at 35. And, I just want people to know that uh, running has been probably the most soothing thing for my body in triathlon because it's a lot of this straight, straight plane uh, activity. So, um, so yeah, trial by fire, and uh, we'll be dragging the kids around to a lot of this stuff. Not to Lima, uh, not to not to Brighton though. You you extended the invite, which is very suggested. Kind of yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I even suggested to my wife, and I got a look, which I think was a no, but like, you know what? All the kind of all the partners with the kids can all meet up together and have a happy kind of. No, she just looked and went, Are "You serious? It's crazy? Like, yeah, okay, forget it, forget it." So. Okay, well. Um, no, fantastic. If people want to contact you, um, what are you on? Did you come off Twitter, by the way? I think you did, uh, didn't I, you? I did, yeah. I just you had to cut something out of the equation, did you? 
Yeah, it's just my bandwidth. And I, I think there's great discussions on Twitter. So um, I post a lot on uh, Instagram at Zarin PT. Um, and I have uh, a lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, I try and do a lot with uh, the Runner Zone, which is this um, online platform or community that, you know, hopefully is a resource for people. Um, I always feel like I'm repeating myself these days, but no, that's a fun group, and uh, hopefully, you know, you've you've enjoyed engaging uh, or interacting on it. Definitely, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't have time to mention that. I mean, it's a huge, massive resource. I know Chris, who joined us today, Chris Kitson, is in there, and every day there's fantastic names and people from all over the world joining it. So, if people are interested in 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 joining that, then what's the protocol? What do they need to do? Oh, uh, just if you just search runner the runner zone in my name. Um, it'll pop up and it's uh it's $249 for the year. But I think this is a, a little bit of an atypical platform. And I just do this just because I can't field all these questions. And I feel so bad when people reach out to me who are trying to push the needle with their professional career, or have questions about athletes that they're working with. Um, but I, I, it's just not in my bandwidth anymore. Um, so, it's a fantastic zone. You've got some amazing names there. You've got Joel and um, uh, Nathan, and there's some incredible names. You And you're pushing out continuous videos and cohorts, and there's – wow, it's, it's huge, isn't it? So Yeah, so yeah. it's fun, and we just try and be a resource for people. But, um, no, if, if folks want to connect with me, um, sync up with me through uh, through Instagram at ZarenPT or uh, reach out to me through Facebook. I'm still pretty active on these platforms. And uh, yeah, anything I can do to help, I gladly will. And um, I really appreciate you carving out the time and having me on your uh, your podcast. And I feel like someone's lit a fire under you, man. I don't know if it's if, if it's your kids or who. Kids. Um, but yeah, all of a sudden you're like, you've gotten all of your ducks in a row. It's you're doing the conference, you have Run Chat Live, and uh, you're just a really personable guy. And I think that's uh, that's someone who's well positioned to get good messages out. Um, I think it's coming together. I think it's just frustration. At, like uh, to finish up on the other day, um, somebody uh, emailed me, I think, and they they made a suggestion that with regards to the conference, they were like, um, maybe can't you do like a deposit thing where people pay a deposit? Because they said you know, like quite a few of the names on your conference they're not that well known, and I was like, dude, the fact that you don't know you're not jumping at the chance of going to see Christopher Johnson and jumping at the chance of seeing JF Escolia. You know, it's like, there seems to be two or three names out there, which are monopolizing the whole of Facebook and Twitter. Um, but, uh, but we'll change it. We'll change the world bit by bit together. It'll be yeah, fine. Well, it takes time. <laughs> yeah. I don't have okay, any to change the world, but ah, bit by bit, we'll start yeah. by changing Brighton and then we'll move on from there. Okay, dude. Well, thank you very much. Once again, enjoy the whole of your day. Oh, uh, thanks, Matt. Regards to your family and uh, keep up the great work. And I look forward to connecting with you come October. And the same to you. Thank you very much. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put you back in the lobby now. Say goodbye to everyone. And then I'll okay. come and thank you again. Just the two of us. Thanks to everyone for tuning in and, uh, you know, stay after it. Fantastic. What an inspirational guy. As always, all my guests are always inspirational. Can you see the common theme? Uh, all my guests are just very inspirational ladies and men. So, yeah, thanks again to uh, Christopher Johnson. Um, we didn't have time to talk about the fact he's like a big competing triathlete as well, as well as everything else and all the research and all of the coaching and all of the uh, treating and all of the analysis. He also manages to get out and do like eight hour cycle rides and compete. And it's incredible. What an individual. I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous in terms of being able to fit all of that in. Um, it's incredible. Anyway, Chris will be one of the speakers in Brighton on the 30th, 31st of October. 
um which is great news uh, tickets are still on sale at, uh if you want to get tickets just look in the links and everywhere i think i have created a, a catchy line which is just rcl2019.eventbrite.com so if you're listening and you just want to go straight to it it's rcl2019.eventbrite.com that's all the information about the other nine speakers um, and tickets are like I said last week. I'm very, very happy to try and give you discounts where possible. If you're students, um, if there's a large group of you, then just email me. It's happened two or three times this week. Matt, blah 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 blah. Fine, here's a twenty percent discount. You know, I just want to make sure that everyone has got an equal opportunity to come to this. So if there's any circumstances where um, you can't afford the whole price ticket, surprise me. Bring up something new, then I'll be happy to look into it and, and send you a code um that's it for now uh next week oh geez hold on here we go talk about organization before i let you go i better tell you who's next week dun, dun, dun. it's only mr gregory layman that's who we got next week that's the caliber of guests we've got here um and that will be at the time of dun 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 two o'clock i think yeah, I think it's two. Check for the advertising. Greg will be with us. Right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thank you, everybody who's watched and joined us live. Thank you, people listening to the podcast. And we'll see you next Sunday with Greg. Uh, any questions or any feedback, as always, Matt at runchatlive.com. Um, that's it. Igor Atheus uh, and Restos Amigos in Peru. No me acuerdo los nombres. Espero que lo has gustado mucho y nos vemos pronto. Okay, everybody. Thank you and adios. You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance.